0: I mentioned in the first episode in this series that the structure of Job is fairly straightforward. There's a a narrative envelope, as it were, a bit of story at the beginning and then again at the end, and then a very long dialogue in between. This is scene two of act one, you might say. It is the second attempt by Satan to get Job to curse God and to reveal that his faith was merely mercenary in nature. We pick up the action at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, here again, we're given a glimpse of the heavenly court, and we are again surprised that Satan is even allowed entry, let alone the privilege of speaking. We are reminded by that, that the devil is a dog on a chain. He will always act according to his nature, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. But he is only ever permitted to do that which ultimately serves God's good and saving purpose. And apparently, God's purpose is not yet fully realized in dear brother Job. Because once again, God directs Satan's attention towards this suffering servant. God says, again, have you considered my servant Job? God is the director of this entire drama. Make no mistake about that. He's the director and he's the principal actor. He says to the devil, you incited me against him. So God owns the fact that ultimately he is the one who acted against Job. On that point, everyone in and around this story is agreed. There is absolutely no attempt in this narrative to distance God from responsibility over all the difficult and horrific things that happened to Job. Everyone in the story unhesitatingly attributes these events ultimately to the sovereignty of God. Job said that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He he didn't say the Lord giveth and Satan taketh away. Job knew who was in charge, and the friends are on the same page when they arrive on the scene. They know who to look to, ultimately, for responsibility. The narrator, too, attributes everything to God. In chapter 1, when a lightning strike, we presume, set the field on fire and burned up all Job's flocks and herds, the narrator calls it the fire of God from heaven. Hear that. Not not the fire of Satan from hell, but the fire of God from heaven. That's what set the field on fire. That's what destroyed Job's wealth and Job's business. Everything is God in this story. And that's not blasphemy. It isn't wrong to attribute these things to God. After all, God says about himself in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So this is just orthodoxy explored for 42 chapters. Everyone agrees that God is alone in majestic authority. He kills, he makes alive. He wounds, He heals and his will is absolutely uncontested in the universe. So if anything happens, whether good or bad, it must have ultimately been ordained by God. Now that word ordained is going to be very important for us because some things are not done directly by God as much as they are permitted by God because they serve some ultimately good and benevolent purpose. Theologians sometimes talk about God's permissive will, and that is a useful category. God permits the devil to act as his agent and to do things to Job that advance God's own purposes. But everyone understands that ultimately the reason for all this must be sought in the Lord. It isn't that Satan had a good day and was able to overpower God on this particular matter. No, there's no dualism here. Satan is a dog on a chain. If Satan was permitted to do this, then ultimately the reason resides with God. God ordained it. He permitted it in order to accomplish certain purposes of his will, whether known or unknown to us. Now, that is complicated. I understand that. But it is worth wrestling with because getting this wrong can lead to all kinds of unhelpful distortions in our view of the world, our estimation of the devil, and ultimately even our worship of God. So it is worth spending a little time to make sure we have this straight. Now, the without reason at the end of verse 3 doesn't mean that God didn't have a reason. It means closer to what we mean with the phrase without cause. God brought suffering upon Job that did not correspond in any particular way to any sin or rebellion in Job's life. That is the oddity that lies at the center of the entire dialogue that follows. This is unusual suffering, and it cannot be logically connected to any particular failing in Job. It was a test. Now, we know that. Satan and God know that. But of course, Job doesn't know that. It was a test, however. And so far, at least, Job has passed that test with flying colors. But the devil wants to take it up a notch. Verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Satan here does Job a great injustice. He argues that the first test wasn't really fair because Job only cares about himself. His wealth and his children, those things are all external to the man, Satan argues. But touch him, take his health, and he will curse you to your face. That's a horrific thing to say. And it tells us far more about the devil than it does about Job. To be Human is indeed to have the capacity to love. To be a father is to know that capacity instinctively. Ask any parent and they will tell you that they would gladly part with their own life if by so doing they could spare the lives of their children. Gladly, with singing and much rejoicing, would I lay down my life if by so doing I could guarantee the life and salvation of my children. But the devil doesn't know that. He isn't a father. He's the father of lies, Jesus says, but that's about it. So he accuses Job of caring only about himself. And God wants to show the devil. He wants to vindicate Job, and he wants it to be known that people can and do love God for God. Not just for the gifts, not just for the benefits that God provides, but for God himself. So he allows the test to go one more round. He says to the devil... Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. You can take his health, but you can't kill him, as that would obviously rob Job of the chance to prove the devil wrong. And so Satan's chain is lengthened one more time. And of course, Job has no idea that all of this is going on. He never knows. And that is a huge part of the lesson of this book david atkinson says so pastorally here he says there is a hidden world of divine purposes of which we know only a part faith is learning to trust god in the dark closed quote isn't that good i found that so helpful and i hope that you do too verse 7 So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. We don't know exactly what sort of disease this was, but we know that it was loathsome and we know that it was itchy and painful because Job actually begins to scrape himself with a piece of broken pottery, which wasn't helpful and probably led to his sores becoming infected. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 5, Job says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. So it sounds like all this scraping with a dirty piece of poverty caused maggots or worms of some kind to get into those sores, and now Job is just one huge seeping mess of rotting human flesh. This is pretty much as bad as it could get which sets Job up, the devil assumes, for the knockout blow. And here it is in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. This is the low point right here of the entire story. You can almost imagine all the angels in heaven leaning forward at this point and holding their collective breath. This is the absolute nadir. Job has lost everything in this moment. His money and wealth are long gone. His kids are all dead. His health and vitality have been eaten away by sickness and infection and worms. And now here, at his most vulnerable, when he most needed a word of encouragement, his own wife, his dearest companion, tells him to give up and to Curse God and die. Oh, what a blow that must have been. A man can stand against the world as long as his wife continues to believe in him. But here is Job at the end of his strength. And the one comfort he has gives up on him. You can't win, Job. You're too small. Just curse God. Give up. Let it go. Say, uncle, curse God and die, she says. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Yes, round two goes to Job, just like round one. God declares Job the undisputed victor in this encounter. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. In fact, he said maybe the most amazing thing in all the Bible. He said, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Are you hearing that? That's incredible. Francis Anderson says here, Such positive faith is the magic stone that transmutes all to gold. For when the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing. But the cost is high. It is easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. We shall watch the struggle as Job's faith is strained every way by temptations to see the cause of his misfortune in something less than God. That is remarkably well said. It takes a very high view of God to receive everything in your life as a gift from His hand. Good things are to be received and should be cause for gratitude. Hard things are to be received as an invitation to grow and, if necessary, repent of sin and, ultimately, to lean more intimately upon the Lord in faith and prayer. All is from God, and therefore, all is blessing. That view of the world requires a very high view of God. But it is the correct view, however uncommon, D.A. Carson writes in the same vein here, saying, We belong to God. He may do with us as he wishes. There is something deep within us that rebels at being reminded of that elemental truth. But truth it is. Indeed, our rebellion in the face of it is a reminder of how much we still want to be at the center of the universe. With God serving us, that is the heart of all idolatry, closed quote. Suffering tests our faith in profound and far-reaching ways. As a pastor, I've seen this many times. I've had people leave our church after a personal hardship and say to me on the way out that they just don't see anymore why they would come to church. They aren't very happy with God, and they don't have anything at present to be thankful for, they say. Those kind of encounters, of course, tell us nothing about God and everything about the idolatry of which human beings are capable of. What type of God must a person believe in to respond that way to personal hardship? A God who is little more than our valet. A God who must provide what we want, when we want it, in the quality and manner we require it. That's a small God. And it is not the God of the Bible and it is not the God of Job. Job has passed the test, tests, plural. He is no mercenary. He loves and worships God irrespective of his present experience in this life. And yet his sufferings appear to go on. That is part of the surprise of the story. Job won. The devil was soundly defeated, and he disappears from the story and is never mentioned again by anyone. His argument was false, his premise faulty, his motives transparently evil, and his ambitions marvelously thwarted. So why then does the suffering of Job endure? It seems to endure for months. Job says to his friends in chapter 7, verse 3, that he has been in this condition for months. Why? What purpose does God have in extending Job's agony? We'll speak about that in some detail in the next episode. But for now, we simply note that it does endure. And that allows us now to introduce the final characters in this great drama. Job's friends arrive to offer comfort. We read about that in verse 11 and following. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. I mentioned in the first episode that Calvin believed that Job lived somewhere in Edom and was likely a descendant of Esau and lived around the time of Moses. And some of those conclusions can be traced back to the information we receive about Job's friends in this verse. Tremper Longman III, for example, says here, It is a matter of curiosity that Esau, also known as Edom, the name given to the region, had a son named Eliphaz, and that Eliphaz had a son named Teman, according to Genesis 36, 10-11. The region of Edom, and in particular Teman, was known as a locus of wisdom, closed quote. So it might make sense to think of Job as living in Edom and being visited by a great, great grandson of Esau, bearing a name that we know was common in that family. If that is the case, then it is reasonable to assume that Job's life was somewhat contemporaneous to the life of Moses. All of that is plausible, if not provable. Regardless, Job was obviously a well-known figure in the region and his situation became known and his friends came to comfort him. Verse 11 continues They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. One of the reasons that the book of Job is in the Bible, not the primary reason, but an important reason nonetheless, is to explore the question of how we should relate to people who are suffering. The book strongly argues against attempting to make connections between people's personal suffering and personal sin. But also, the book commends the ministry of sympathy and quiet presence. It is often said that the best thing Job's friends did in this story was to sit with him silently without a word being spoken for seven days. Francis Anderson says here, they were true friends, bringing to Job's lonely ash heap the compassion of a silent presence. Now, That isn't to say that conversation and dialogue will never be a part of how we help our friends survive and process extreme difficulty and suffering. Of course it will be. It is only to say that such dialogue should not be the first thing we bring. The first thing we should bring is sympathy, silence, and presence. The time to talk and to wrestle things out will surely come as it does in this story, but let it come at the initiation of the suffering party as it does in this story. As we shall see tomorrow, it is Job who breaks the silence and begins to wonder aloud at the purposes of God. Job's friends were true friends, and their presence and their silence was a kindness from the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.